This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. We have a lot of history to uncover on this episode, so let's get right to it. For the first time since the Academy began handing out awards for movie songs in 1934, we have a full slate of nominated songwriters who have all been nominated before. That means all six men and one woman nominated for the original song Oscar for 1989 know what it's like to sit in the audience and hope their names will be announced as the year's best songwriters. Four of them have even felt that thrill of winning at least one Oscar statuette. It was a record year in Hollywood outside of the original song score category, too. Thanks to the third Indiana Jones movie and the first Batman big-budget live-action movie, Box office grosses rejuvenated the movie industry with a combined gross of nearly $1 billion, making 1989 the most successful year for movies worldwide up to that point. Add in the highly anticipated sequels to Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and there was rarely a weekend in the latter part of 1989 when a movie wasn't breaking records or surpassing expectations. The first installments of Back to the Future and Ghostbusters each featured original songs nominated for the Academy Award but apparently no one thought to recapture that magic and solicit new songs for their sequels. Batman's producers asked Prince to contribute some original songs for the superhero movie, but only Bat-Dans found a life outside the movie. That was the song that started the craze of putting dialogue from the movie into the song, and it helped Bat-Dans reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. As I've said before, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences didn't release the names of eligible songs back then, but Bat Dance would not have been eligible because it was never performed in the movie. The other songs, including the upbeat Party Man, were not big radio hits, but helped to make the soundtrack a big seller. There was one film in the top earners of 1989 that made its way onto the list of Oscar nominees for original song, and it did it twice. For the sixth time in ten years, one film earned two nominations for original song, and in 1989, that film was The Little Mermaid. It brought composer Alan Menken and lyricist Howard Ashman back to the Oscars three years after they wrote a new song for their Broadway transplant, Little Shop of Horrors. It was also the film that began what we now know as the Disney Renaissance, a term that was given to the Disney film's release between 1989 and 1999. For the first time since Walt Disney's death in 1966, his movie studio was making a movie based on a children's story instead of coming up with original ideas or making kids' movies out of more mature works of literature. Howard Ashman was the one to bring the idea for The Little Mermaid out of mothballs, reviving an idea that Walt Disney had to make it into an animated movie. After working out a storyline that would change some things from the Han Christian Andersen story, Ashman thought the movie could make for a great musical. He made some more changes to make this happen, including switching Sebastian, the crab, from British to Jamaican, and from a butler to an aspiring composer. But Ashman was only a lyricist, and the only person who could help him with the songs was Alan Menken. 
The two created a song score that felt very much like they could have been part of a live-action retelling of The Little Mermaid. None of the songs talk down to children and have become timeless classics. It's sort of a surprise, though, that The Little Mermaid only got two songs onto the final list of five Oscar nominees. The first of the two nominated songs comes 30 minutes into the movie, after the title Mermaid, named Ariel, has gone to the surface and fallen in love with a human prince named Eric. She has rescued him from drowning after his ship sinks, and while she imagines how she will see him again, Sebastian tries to keep her mind, quote, out of the clouds and back in the water where it belongs, end quote. The best way for him to do it is sing Under the Sea, a showstopper of a song if there ever was one, as he lists all the great things that can be found on the ocean floor. Samuel E. Wright, who was known on Broadway mostly as Ben Vereen's replacement in Pippin in the 1970s, is the voice of Sebastian. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. Under the sea, nobody beat us, fry us, and eat us in fricassee. We want the land folks not to cook. Under the sea, we have to hook up. We got no trouble. Life is the bubbles under the sea. 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 Since life is sweet here, we got to be here naturally. naturally. Even the sturgeon and the ray. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, start to play. We got the spirit, you got to hear it under the sea. The lute play, the flute, the cop play, the harp, the bass play, the bass play, the brass, the chop play, the top. The flute is the duke of soul. The ring, he can play the links on the strings, the chop. The blackfish is in this belt and this rat. They know where it's at, they know that blow is Little slug here, cutting a rug here under the sea. 
As I said before, Sebastian the Crab was originally going to have an English accent and be essentially a very prim and proper aid to the Sea King. But when Sebastian became a composer with a Caribbean accent, things changed quickly for Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, and they created new melodies for him to sing. Under the Sea leans heavily into Sebastian's Caribbean roots, and Menken has said that he came up with the melody for Under the Sea very quickly. The lyrics came just as fast. The second song from The Little Mermaid that was nominated could be described as a love song, and it's called Kiss the Girl. Ariel has traded her voice for the chance to live on land with human legs, and she has to get Eric to kiss her before the sun sets on the third day to make her human permanently. By sunset on the second day, there has been no kissing, and Sebastian comes up with a plan to make it happen. While Eric and Ariel ride in a boat one evening, Sebastian recruits the animals around him to sing Kiss the Girl and subconsciously convince Eric to kiss Ariel. Percussion. Strings. Winds. Words. There you see her sitting there across the way. She don't got a lot to say but there's something about her and you don't know why, but you're dying to try. You wanna kiss the girl. Did, did you hear something? Yes, you want her. Look at her, you know you do. Possible she wants you to. There is one way to ask her. It don't take a word, not a single word. Go on and kiss the girl. Sing with me now. Sha la 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 by your mind Look like the boy too shy Ain't gonna kiss the girl Sha la 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 in the sun Ain't it a shame too bad He gonna miss the girl You know, I feel really bad not knowing your name. <laughs> Maybe I could guess. Is it, uh, Mildred? <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> How about uh, Diana? Rachel? Ariel. Her name is Ariel. Ariel? Ariel? Huh. Well, that's kind of pretty. Okay. Ariel. Now's your moment. Floating in a blue lagoon. But you better do it soon. No time will be better. She don't say a word, and she won't say a word until you kiss the girl. Sha la 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 la, don't be scared. You got the moves prepared. Go on and kiss the girl. Sha la 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 la, don't stop now. Don't try to hide it out. You wanna kiss the girl. Sha la 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 la, float along and listen to the song. Go on and kiss the girl. 
In the years since Kiss the Girl was presented in 1989, some have blasted it as offensive, saying it permits the man to kiss the woman without her consent. Yes, I know Ariel is 16 years old in the movie, but surprisingly, no one has brought up that little detail. Now, putting all that aside, Kiss the Girl was definitely worthy of an Oscar nomination, not only for giving us another fun song from Sebastian the Crab, but for being instantly catchy. Of the other five songs written for The Little Mermaid, Part of Your World was another likely Oscar contender. In a Broadway musical, this song would be called the I Want Song, performed by a character whose needs could be conveyed in a monologue in a Shakespeare play, but sung in a musical. Movie musicals have always had these I Want songs, including the very famous Over the Rainbow, as well as fellow Academy Award winners It Might As Well Be Spring and Fame. Yes, if you think about it, Fame is an I Want song. Irene Cara isn't singing about love, but about being famous. With the Little Mermaid songs feeling very much like they belonged on the Broadway stage, the I Want song suddenly became the new template for movie musicals. The two song nominations for The Little Mermaid marked the first time the Walt Disney Studios showed up in this category since Somebody's Waiting for You from The Rescuers in 1977. As I mentioned before, this was the beginning of a new and exciting chapter for Disney animation, and the studio won't go 12 years between nominations anymore. Five years after writing the screenplay and co-writing the songs for the 1984 movie Footloose, Dean Pitchford was back in the Oscar race. In 1988, he helped Eric Carmen maintain the popularity he found with Hungry Eyes in 1987 with the song Make Me Lose Control. That song went to number three on the Billboard Hot 100, which was the first appearance in the Billboard Hot 100 for Pitchford since the songs for Footloose took the world by storm. It's likely that this hit song convinced director Emil Ardolino to hire Pitchford and fellow Footloose songwriter Tom Snow to write the love song for the movie, Chances Are. The song, called After All, earned Pitchford his fourth Academy Award nomination and Snow his second. To talk about After All, I've invited Dean Pitchford back to the show to learn about writing this song. So before we talk about After All, I want to know more about Make Me Lose Control by Eric oh. Carmen. So I have always liked this song, and I'll I'll admit I didn't know you wrote it until I was actually doing research about your career. So it's just kind of all coming full circle about all these great songs you wrote that I didn't know you wrote. Um, so you were responsible for obviously quite a a few great songs from the '80s. Um, a lot of them were number ones. How did it feel to have this song do so well in record sales and get so high on the Billboard charts five years after all the songs from Footloose? Well, the Make Me Lose Control saga was actually a very interesting uh, interesting development because I had, Eric and I had started that song and then I went off to England. I was working on a musical with the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford, England. And Eric was riding the crest of the popularity of the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And he was signed at that point to Clive Davis at Arista Records. And Clive is an old friend who had not only his, his champion a number of, of my songs, including All the Man That I Need for Whitney Houston. Um, but he had this idea that he was going to catch the wave of nostalgia that Eric was surfing at the time because he was part of the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And he knew this song 
Uh, Eric had played it for him when he signed with the, the label. And um, he said, I think that that fits right into the ballpark of the, it has the sound of the Dirty Dancing era. Yeah, very he much said, in the 60s. But it, you know, uh, it, it's it's very specific. It needs to be made a little bit more general. And so I actually did a quick rewrite on it over uh, while I was in Stratford, England. And I sent the new lyric to Eric, who loved it, and sent it to Clive, who loved it. And they went into the studio and recorded it immediately. And um, he, the thing is that he did, bless his heart, Clive Davis didn't let any daylight slip between the Dirty Dancing juggernaut and the release of Make Me Lose Control. And so if you weren't paying a lot of attention, you might think Make Me Lose Control was out of the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And it had that feeling of, it names all these uh, 50, 60 songs, Be My Baby, and Uptown's playing on the radio. Uh, and it's, uh, so it really harks back to that era very strongly. And he got it right there out there on the air Radio just lapped it up and it went through the roof. And it turned out to be the lead single from the next uh, album, the first album that Eric was bringing from uh, Arista. And the follow-up single was also another one of ours called I Want to Hear It From Your Lips. Yeah, I know that song too. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, uh, and that all, all happened while I was overseas and I got, I got back to find that we were way up the charts with Make Me Lose Control. Yeah, it had to be fun to to know that you're off in England. This song is becoming a hit. You come back and everybody's talking about it. It's lovely. Yes, it was lovely. And then after that comes the opportunity to write a song for the movie Chances Are. Uh, so how did you and Tom Snow get connected with director Emil Ardolino? The, when we did Footloose, um, the, Dan Malik had an assistant named Chris Melodandri. And Chris Melodandri ended up on uh, in a producerial function on Chances Are. Chris Melodandri has since gone on to much greater success with the um, the Despicable Me franchise. Okay. That's, that's his. But Chris was a, a, a wonderful, he was a young guy who was getting his feet wet in the business and he went from the success of Footloose and he started producing films on his own. And he asked me to take a look at the movie uh, of Chances Are. And so, um, and I called Tom and asked him if he would work with me on that. Uh, and it was, it was, here's the thing about Chances Are was that what, we knew that the title of our song could not be Chances Are. Sure. We were not going to write a title song because I was not going to go up against the Johnny Mathis classic. So in a way it was very freeing, not having to cater to a title. And um, the other thing that I liked about the assignment was that, if you look back on a lot of my catalog, there's a youthful exuberance to you know the, the the tunes that I was writing, Fame and Footloose and Let's Hear It for the Boy, and they were all very uh, um, youthful in their energy. And here with Chances Are, there was a a more mature love story being told, and I was I embraced the opportunity to write something that had a bit of a mature aspect to it and so the the opening of it, it well here we are again i guess it must be fate we tried it on our own but deep in that in but deep inside we've known we'd be back to set things straight it speaks to a if not a lifetime certainly 
a chapter of a lifetime in which opportunities have come and they've passed, they've slipped away, we've come back again, we've given it another shot. And I, I liked the opportunity, especially because the story of the movie is about an angel who did not did not get to heaven and have his memory erased. Instead, the angel, Chris McDonald's spirit, goes to heaven, he escapes being wiped of his memory and he returns to earth to be reincarnated as Robert Downey Jr. And so he comes back with all of the feelings he doesn't realize, but all of the feelings that Chris McDonald had for the Civil Shepherd character. So <clears throat> this idea of, of souls coming back and continuing to love the people that they loved in a previous life, it gave rise to the line, uh, two angels who've been rescued from the fall. And so I, I, it, it just was an opportunity to to write at a a, a more um, experienced level that the souls were more experienced in their mm -hmm. in their journeys, and uh, and so we we took to it immediately, and uh, I think we made a very Tom and I immediately clicked with the movie, clicked with the ideas of the movie, um, and. Once I had the the idea of two angels who've been rescued from the fall, and I guess it's meant to be forever you and me after all, uh, we had the heart and soul of the song. And then Emil, bless his heart, uh, Emil then went back and he loved the melody so much that he went back and there were moments in the movie in which the Robert Downey Jr. character sits and plugs away at a piano. And that had been shot in such a way that it could be anything that he was playing at the piano. Okay. Well, Emil went back and retrofitted it with the melody of After All and filmed hands. I don't know whether they were Robert Downey's hands, but they, he filmed hands plucking out the melody for After All.
I was saying to him and to Tom that I love the way that the melody of the way we were works in that movie. It's background, 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 and then it swells into its statement in the final reel. And I thought that that was a wonderful tease and payoff. And indeed, that's what ended up happening with the song. It's it's teased throughout the picture. And then in the wedding scene, it gets full expression. I completely thought it was the other way around. I thought Tom wrote that music for that scene. And then you built lyrics around that. So it's interesting that it, it, it went backwards.
That's Peter Cetera and Cher singing after all, an unlikely duo that rivals Jennifer Warnes and Joe Cocker. Now, Sharon had a more of a solo career. Uh, Peter Cetera was spinning off from Chicago? Yes. Chicago. So they were both, uh, they had both been associated with uh, partnerships, Cher with Sonny, Peter with Chicago, and they were sort of free-floating and it was possible to put them together. But Cher was just in the beginning of her comeback. She had just finished the album called Cher and the song I Found Someone was just beginning to hit radio. And I called my friend Paul Grine and Paul Grine is still with Billboard magazine. He's the archivist at Billboard magazine. And he knows, he knows everything about every song ever made since the beginning of time. And he said, oh, no doubt, absolutely no doubt, it has to be Cher. And he said, not only is she on the beginning of a comeback, but Geffen, the, the Geffen record label, is um, putting a lot of money toward her next record. They are investing heavily in what was going to become the um, Heart of Stone album. And uh, so we ended up going with that kind of like on the advice of Paul Grine. And uh, not only did they record uh, I, uh, after all, and it came as the first single because it had to be timed to the release of the picture. But right after, after all, went up the charts and down the charts, went gold, went to eight, number one on AC, went all over the world. The follow-up single from the Heart of Stone album was If I Could Turn Back Time. And it was that one-two punch that just lifted that album into the stratosphere. And we were, we had started the thing, but not in the way that if I could turn back time, lifted it into the stratosphere. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I, I give all the credit to Paul Grind. It wasn't that I had the prescience to, to go out and go, go get Cher, go get Peter Cetera. And the interesting thing too, is that um, they were, she was very, I think she was very conscientious about not wanting to find herself paired with a man again or closely associated with a man again. So although she agreed, and although I think that the Geffen label had a lot to do with it, because when an artist records something for a record, for a film, the film company kicks in promotion money as well as the record company kicking in promotion money. So there's a double whammy and it's a chance to move a, a song farther up the charts than it might otherwise go. So that was the thinking on the part of the Geffen company. Give us a duet from a major motion picture that's about to land and we will be happily loan you our artist. So um, Cher said yes, Peter Cetera said yes, but Cher would not go into the studio with Peter Shatera. She wanted to record her tracks solo and he could come in at another time and record his tracks around her. Do you and know why she didn't want to do it with him? I think it was, again, I at first I was thought that it was being, uh, she was being, uh, th th there was some sort of diva behavior going on there. The more I thought about it, the more I look back on it in retrospect, uh, the more I realized that she had a very, very clear sense of herself. She had a really good uh, self-awareness. And she had spent a lot of time escaping from the shadow of Sonny and being able to stand on her own two feet and be Cher without 
uh, Sunny and sure. prior to her name. Uh, um, I understand. You know, and yet the label was saying, do this duet, do this duet, do this duet. She did, to her credit. It became a big hit for the both of them, became an Academy Award nomination. All that was great, but I also, in retrospect, recognized that she she was at the beginning of a comeback, and she had the chance to write her story, and she was choosing not to write her story in in uh, as an ampersand connected to a man. Um, to the point that after the Oscar nomination came, she would not sing it on the Oscars. She declined to sing it on the Oscars. And as a consequence, Peter Sotera said, then I won't. And it ended up being Melissa Manchester and James Ingram singing the song. And again, at the time, I thought, how do you not take the opportunity to sing this on the Oscars? Well, you know why? She had just won an Academy Award herself. Yeah, right. And so it wasn't like you could dangle an appearance on the Academy Awards before Cher and have her go, yes, absolutely. I'd love to do that. I've never done that before. No, she had been there. She had won the biggest honor possible. And so, and she did not want to be seen by a worldwide audience as the duet partner to a man. And I look back on it and I, I, I applaud her. Tom and I are grateful for her because every time she does a comeback, she does a tour. And every time she does a tour, she films it. And every time she films, she releases an album or a, v, a CD or a, a, a DVD. And uh, after all, is front and center. I've subsequently met her uh, after that recording. We met in several social settings. And she was always incredibly gracious and lovely. And then I have to tell you a story real quickly that's not going to make the podcast because it's too long. But in a nutshell, I flew to New York. I had an apartment in New York that I had sublet. So I needed to stay in somebody else's apartment. And a girlfriend of mine said, take my apartment. So I went and I, I moved into this apartment on the night that I arrived before my birthday. And I fell asleep in her, in her apartment. And her alarm clock was, I did not do this, but her alarm clock was preset to go off. And so at like 7 a.m. in the morning, it woke up with music to the local pop station. And it was my birthday on that day. And the local DJ said, we're sitting here with Cher. We're having a lovely conversation. And, you know, uh, let's do our uh, uh, today's birthdays. And he led a, read a list of birthdays. And he said, and Dean Pitchford. And Cher on mic said, oh, it's Dean's birthday. Happy birthday, Dean. And I sat bolt upright in bed. And I looked around, I thought, am I being punked? I'm sitting, I'm lying in a stranger, I'm not a stranger, but a friend's bed. The radio came on in time for Cher to wish me happy birthday. What is going on with the universe? But that was my, oh my, how, how many things have to go right for that to happen? Yes, absolutely. Amazing. I love that story. Isn't that fun? But so just one more question about the, the performers who ended up singing, obviously, were Pierre Soter and Cher, not to Dollar Park. But, of course, you know, Emil Ardolino did Dirty Dancing, which had Time of My Life, which was recorded by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren. Did Emil ever push for those two to, to come back and do this one? I was not privy to the, uh, you know, the, the thing is we delivered the song and I was, I know that I was in the middle of a lot of other things at the time. So I did not... I, I did not um, camp out in those production offices and I was not privy to the process that went okay. through. 
Um, but you know, to be honest, I would say that there was uh, there was no point in repeating either one of those in the, I mean, the last thing that you want to do is feel like you're bringing this year's Jennifer Warren's Bill Medley song. Uh, I think that um, whoever put the pairing together very wisely settled on a brand new set of voices. It definitely worked. I have no argument against it. No. And, and the, a lovely thing, a lovely consequence of it was perhaps because it ends the movie on a wedding scene and the song is being played over the processional in the wedding scene, um, that song has for, while there were still such things as printed music collections, that song has shown up in wedding song collections for 35 years. It's been a mainstay of, and I, I, you know, who knows that it would have made it if not for the suggestion that the movie made that this would be really good at a wedding. Um, I want to just kind of general, talk about general, songwriting process and i i have never really got the chance to ask you this before but does the process for writing a song for a movie where you have to make the song fit a specific story differ for you from the process of writing a quote-unquote generic pop song yes um although i i like to think that i don't write generic pop songs but i do know what you mean i think the fact is that when there is a, a different challenge because writing a pop song for which for whom I don't have a voice in my head is a different challenge than writing for the plot of a motion picture. Um, in when I write songs for the pop market, I basically write myself. I, I write what I'm feeling and I, I gamble on the possibility that other people are feeling the same things that I'm feeling. And so that gives rise to things like "Let's Hear It for the Boy," not 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 "Let's Hear It for uh, You Should Hear How She Talks About You," uh, or um, even "Don't Fight It," even the, the Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, "Don't Fight It." But um, in a, a motion picture, gives context to the songs. And um, Stephen Sondheim, I, I had drinks with Stephen Sondheim one night in New York, and he said, "I could never do what you do." I said, "What do you mean?" He said. I can't write, I can't pull an idea out of the air and write something. I need a librettist to give me a script with characters and a scene. And then I can take a chunk of that dialogue and, and, and cannibalize it for the song that I'm going to write. But I can't just write a song like you do. And uh, I, I realized I, I do that, what he just described, I do with a motion picture. I take the essence of the motion picture and I cannibalize its essence. Um, but with Tom Snow and Eric Carmen and other people, I've been able to write myself into the market, into the, into the songs. Um, but I've also been very allergic to, I'm, I'm not a big fan of writing songs that retell the story of the movie. Sure. I, I try to kind of glance off the title of the movie or the the the, uh, the essence of the movie. For instance, like I said, when we wrote Chances, when we wrote After All for Chances Are, there was no possibility that we were going to write a song called Chances Are. So it freed me up to find something that encapsulated the, the essence of the movie uh, and stumbled on the idea of angels 
and of uh, 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 every step I take retreats, every every memory repeats, every step I take retreats, every journey always brings me back to you. The idea of this circular, this you know, back again, back again, reincarnation. Uh, it was a, an opportunity to write very close to the movie without describing the movie, without telling the story of the movie. And so um, it was my favorite kind of writing. After All became one of Cher's biggest hits of the 1980s, getting up to number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the adult contemporary chart. As for Peter Cetera, his solo career hit a peak with Glory of Love and The Next Time I Fall in 1986, and After All gave him his final appearance in the top 10 of the Billboard charts. After All is the only Oscar-nominated song from 1989 to make a dent in record sales and public exposure. Randy Newman was still looking for the song that would follow 1977's Short People all the way to number one on the charts, but he couldn't find it with I Love to See You Smile, the song he wrote for Ron Howard's comedic drama Parenthood. The movie was a hit, but the song never got a commercial release outside of a track on the film's soundtrack album. Before working on Parenthood, Randy Newman's work since earning two Oscar nominations for his music in 1981's Ragtime was mostly in the pop music world. His 1983 album, Trouble in Paradise, featured the cult favorite song, I Love L.A., and he wrote an Oscar-nominated score for the 1984 movie, The Natural. In addition to that, he wrote another jazz album called Land of Dreams in 1988. Parenthood would be his unofficial return to the movie industry, which the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences rewarded with an Oscar nomination. Randy Newman sings I Love to See You Smile during the movie's opening credits when the parents, played by Steve Martin and Mary Steenburgen, are trying to get their kids in the minivan after a baseball game. There's a lot of dialogue that occurs over the song performance, but thankfully we get the full song performance again during the end credits. I was born to make you happy I think it's just my style Everywhere I go, tell everyone I know, baby, I love to see you smile. Don't want to take a trip to China. Don't want to sail up the night. Wouldn't want to get too far from where you are. Cause I love to see you smile. Like a sink without a faucet Like a watch without a dime What would I do If I didn't have you Love to see you smile In the summer In the springtime The winter or the fall The only place I Wanna be it's where I can see you smile at me in a world that's full of trouble. 
make it all worthwhile. What would I do if I didn't have you? Just love to see you smile. I love to see you smile. This feels more like a song that Randy Newman would write and perform, more so than One More Hour from Ragtime. It doesn't have the biting wit that Short People has, but the upbeat musicality fits the lighter mood of parenthood. One of the movie's main themes is love, whether it's a married couple trying to rekindle their relationship or a younger couple falling madly in love with each other. It's a love song that does make you smile, without the syrupy romanticism that permeated movie songs 50 years earlier. The fifth nominated song is a song about self-discovery, from the British film Shirley Valentine. The title character, played by Pauline Collins, takes a trip to Greece to get away from her uninteresting life as a mother and housewife. We understand Shirley's dilemma during the opening credits, thanks to the nominated song The Girl Who Used to Be Me. The lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman start off with a female chorus lamenting about the events that led to Shirley becoming a lifeless homemaker before it turns into a first-person lament about the life she used to have. It was always sit down, Shirley, Valentine, go away, Shirley. Just wasn't there anymore A bird is born to fly Born for the moment It takes to the sky And all its dreams Are riding on on its wings But if it falls 
But dreams aren't broken as long as the wind is fair. The sky is always there. Oh, the girl who used to be me, she could fly. She was free and she wrote all the words to her song. Yes, the girl who used to be me used to go Alan and Marilyn Bergman reunited with Marvin Hamlish for the first time since their Oscar-nominated song, The Last Time I Felt Like This, in 1978. In those 11 years, the Bergmans hadn't done much work, writing some pop songs for Frank Sinatra, Stephen Bishop, and Melissa Manchester. But none of those songs took off, a surprise given that their last movie project before Shirley Valentine was their Oscar-winning song score for Yentl. This shows how sometimes an Academy Award doesn't guarantee years and years of constant work that gets heard and loved all over the world. It's not known how the Bergmans and Marvin Hamlish were brought into this very British movie, but the project brought the Bergmans back to the Oscars after a six-year hiatus, and Hamlish got the adoration of his peers for the first time since 1985. But the song The Girl Who Used to Be Me got next to no airplay and it would have to lobby for its songwriters to win an Oscar almost solely on the merit of its use in the film. So about three weeks before these five songs would officially be named Oscar nominees, all five of them competed for the Golden Globe Award on January 20th, 1990. This was the first time that the Golden Globe and Oscar nominees completely matched up, and when Under the Sea was voted by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association as the best song of 1989, that pushed Alan Menken and Howard Ashman to the top in the odds to win their first Oscar. The Oscar nominations were announced on February 14, 1990, giving each nominated songwriter a wonderful Valentine's Day gift. Because of the different eligibility calendar, only two of the nominees were competing for the Grammy for the Best Song Written for Visual Media category on February 20, 1990. Those two songs, I Love to See You Smile, and The Girl Who Used to Be Me, competed with Carly Simon's 1988 Oscar-winning best song, Let the River Run, as well as Prince's Party Man from Batman. Also in the running was the U2 song, Angel of Harlem, from their concert film about the Rattle and Hum tour. Carly Simon won her second Grammy, her first as a songwriter. Because the Golden Globe nominees and Academy Award nominees matched for 1989 songs, you would think that the quality of songs that didn't get nominated was pretty low. I mentioned Prince's songs from Batman, which aren't as good as those from Purple Rain, 
but better than the song score from Under the Cherry Moon. One song that might have been listed in sixth place in Academy nomination voting was Fight the Power, which Spike Lee asked rap group Public Enemy to write and perform for his movie Do the Right Thing. The song is played multiple times in the movie as a symbol of fighting against injustice and makes its presence really known as the racial tension in Brooklyn grows. The song became so tied to the movie, and people these days don't even think about the movie without thinking about Bite the Power. Timothy Dalton's last appearance as James Bond came in the 1989 movie License to Kill, and it, of course, featured a title song. That song was written and performed by Gladys Knight, the first time a Bond song was written by just one person, and a woman to boot. The song might not have been eligible for an Academy Award because a portion of the melody directly refers to the opening notes of Goldfinger, which the producers acknowledged and paid royalties to John Barry. Dean Pitchford wrote the screenplay and co-wrote 10 original songs for the movie Sing in 1989. And given his history with the Academy, perhaps some of his songs had a chance for an Oscar nomination. But the film's bad performance ruined any chance of Pitchford earning two Oscar nominations for 1989. Let's talk about Sing. We wrote 
10 original songs that came out the same year, 1989. Yes. That's probably what I was working on. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you were. You said you you were so busy. Um, the movie didn't do very well. Um, why do you think the movie and I guess even the songs didn't resonate with the public? I think the movie was very inside. By that, I mean, Sing, the actual tradition of Sing is a tradition that is grew up in the the boroughs of Manhattan, of New York City. Uh, and it was a competition between within high schools and then between high schools. And uh, it was basically the kids who were in the drama programs or the choral programs or the orchestra programs wrote and staged their own musical. And they they competed the junior, sophomore, junior, senior years competed against each other. And then the winners in those schools competed with each other. And it was a very powerful uh, memory to a lot of people who had grown up in that era in the 50s, 60s, 70s in Brooklyn, for instance. Barbara Streisand had been in Sing, uh, Simon and, uh, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel had done Sing. Uh, there were uh, Billy Crystal had been in Sing. There were any number of people who who traced their roots to that borough of Manhattan of, of New York City, and have very powerful memories about Sing. The two producers of Sing, uh, Craig Zaden and Neil Marin, had both been products of that that journey, and they had very powerful and emotional connection to that. And they told me about it, and I could feel their their passion for it. Um, but I, I got swept up in their memories and their emotion for it. And, uh, not, I had not thought globally. I had not thought how it would move outside of that particular bubble. And, uh, I think that that might have been, it, I limited the, the, I think I limited the message and that's a, uh, that was the result of it. Um, there were, I, I enjoyed several writing, several of the songs in that movie, um, uh, birthday suit with Johnny Kemp, uh, with uh, I wrote with Rhett Lawrence. Romance, which I wrote with Pat Leonard, and we had Paul Carrick record that. So there were there were some lovely uh, writing experiences, but I, I I was working with material that I once I saw it on film, I realized it didn't have the universal reach that um, I, I needed it to have. Well. The silver lining, at least for that year, is you you did get recognition for several awards for after all, including the Oscar. Uh, what do you remember about hearing that after all got that Oscar nomination? Oh, <laughs> that was funny. I I remember that all that year, the year leading up to uh, the awards, um, after all was first of all it become a huge hit. It was all over the world, and it was being talked about as an Oscar shoe-in. And then in the fall, Little Mermaid opened. Yes. And uh, I had written with Alan Menken back in the day in New York. And I thought it was, you know, it was time that Alan stepped up to his place on the world stage. And I, the first day that it opened... I went to see it because of my connection to Alan. And I sat there and I listened to Part of Your World, Under the Sea, Kiss the Girl. And I went, that's it. 
we don't have a chance at the Oscar this year. Um, but for a very good reason, you know, it's lovely to to know that you're uh, going to be you you might be uh, considered in the same school in the same camp as those tunes. And it was the beginning of Alan and Howard's ascendancy and then Alan's longevity. Um, but I think that when, here's the interesting thing. Okay, this'll take you back. I ran into Jeff Katzenberg, who had been the president, vice president of Paramount when we did Footloose over there, or president of production. I don't remember what his title was, but he and Michael Eisner had gone over to Disney. And one of the things that they were going to do when they got over to Disney was to revive the animation. It had all fallen into disrepair and there was no animation tradition. I ran into Jeffrey Katzenberg in a theater in Westwood and he said, I was going to talk to you. I want to talk to you because we're doing, a, a, we're restarting the animation program. We're bulking up the department and we want to do a new musical and we want a bunch of different artists, to, uh, writers to contribute would you come in and, and meet with us about this? And so um, I, Tom and I went, Tom Snow and I went in to talk about a movie that the first return to animation was called Oliver and Company. And so we went in and they said, um, we're getting all these different partners to write these songs. They had Barry Mann writing a song. They had Barry Manilow writing a song. They had Billy Joel writing a song. They had Alan Menken and Howard Ashman writing a song. Um, but we were sort of at the beginning. I think that there were, they said, this is where we want you and Tom to write a song. And so uh, we, we we wrote a song called Streets of Gold. Ruth Pointer recorded it. Um, the movie came out and interestingly enough, became the highest grossing animation picture in history up to that point. It was a big hit and it, it signaled uh, that the return to animation was the way to go for the Disney studios. And then the next thing that happened was Little Mermaid with all those original songs, all written by two guys, all cohesive, all making perfect sense. And the, you know, then we were off to the races after that. The Academy Awards ceremony began on March 26, 1990 and the nominees weren't the only ones looking into the crystal ball. Show producer Gil Cates wrote an introductory letter in the ceremony program, and what he said was almost accurate. One thing he said was, quote, a student of American history could not find a better resource to study the interests, dress, language, and thoughts of a particular year than to watch this venerable institution's annual happening, end quote. As one of those students, I completely agree. Cates also said this, quote, Perhaps in 50 or 100 years, when a student of history is watching tonight's program on his or her TV viewing ring or wall-sized monitor, that student will not only learn about this year's films, but will also have a more profound sense of the amazing times we're now living in, end quote. Yeah, he got the wall-sized monitor prediction almost correct, and also got right the sense that we in the 21st century will look back on this year in amazement. The suspense was relieved tremendously early in the show, with the original score award listed third in the presentation order. Alan Menken's score was nominated alongside instrumental scores from John Williams, and The Little Mermaid became the third animated film to win in this category, 49 years after Pinocchio and 48 years after Dumbo. 
The song presentations went pretty well, with the Disney song serving as an audition for the possibility of The Little Mermaid bringing its Broadway-style song score to The Great White Way. The performance of Under the Sea featured Jeffrey Holder singing in Samuel E. Wright's place, with actors on wires playing various sea creatures, and an extended dance number featuring humans dancing on the stage with fins. Paula Abdul and Dudley Moore came out about two hours later to present the original song award, and it probably was no surprise that Under the Sea was named the winner. Alan Minken made more history as the eighth person to win two music awards in the same year. So knowing that Alan was one of your your good friends, I guess it may have taken the sting out of not winning the Oscar that year, I guess. Oh, well, absolutely. You know, as my mother said, my mother was visiting a couple of weeks before the Oscars and she was saying, uh, we were driving down the street one day and she turned to me and she said, you know, you're not going to win this year. And I said, why? Why would you say that to me? And she said, well, you've won already. And she basically was saying what I already felt, which was, I have, I have mine on the shelf. It's somebody else's turn. And I would, it would be uh, an honor to have somebody else, especially Howard and Alan, take the award. And they did. And, and you know what? It raised the bar for all of us. Because that was your final Oscar nomination, does that Oscar ceremony stand out to you more than the other two because it was your last time attending as a nominee? I didn't know it was going to be my last time. Of course, yeah. Not at, at the time you don't um, know. But I no, to be honest, I I was thrilled to have that uh, happening. I, I think that happened right on the heels of All the Man That I Need. Uh, Whitney Houston had a worldwide number one with All the Man That I Need. And so things were moving nicely on the pop side and on the film side. But I was also very aware that both industries were changing tremendously. And I was not... I, I was not seeing myself in the film industry going forward as much. I did not see myself having a presence in the film industry as much as I had before. Um, the thing was, what had happened with Fame, Footloose, and uh, Flashdance, and then continued through Purple Rain and uh, a, a, you know a number of other musicals that were that were big pop-based uh, musicals, was that. And suddenly you, you were swimming alone in the pool. You had your own lane to yourself. And all of a sudden, everybody was in the pool. And every uh, record label had their own uh, agenda for their artists vis-a-vis -vis motion picture placement and MTV videos and all of that. And we had gotten in. I had been able to get in before it got overcrowded. And I'd had a wonderful, wonderful run. And then after that, when everybody piled in, I was, I went off, actually, I went off and I began working a lot more uh, on Broadway, uh, doing more of my Broadway work. And so I, um, I didn't, I didn't mark that Oscar ceremony as like a valediction. Uh, I just thought, you know what, to be honest, it had been five years since my last nominations. And I thought how nice that they invited me back, you know? Right. Yeah. I just enjoyed the heck out of it. And you mentioned All the Man That I Need, which, yeah, came right after this Oscar ceremony. So I guess it was kind of like, okay, I still have I still have something going for me. I mean, especially, yeah. you know, when, when I know you had written the song 
you know, almost a decade earlier. And then Whitney Houston just turns around and just makes it a big hit. It must have been it must have felt very good to finally get that exposure for that. Well, song. and I'll tell you how it happened. I had dinner one night with Clive Davis, who I mentioned earlier with regard to Make yes. Me Lose Control. And uh, I went to dinner with Clive in New York. And as we were, he we shared a cab and he was getting out of the cab. And I said, Clive, I've got a song that I think might work for Whitney Houston. And if you would be so kind, can I send it to you to listen to? Now, it was had been recorded already. It had been recorded by uh, Linda Clifford. And it had been recorded by Sister Sledge as all the, all the men that I need. Uh, and then um, I sent it to Clive. And he said, he called me up. He said, this, this song is gorgeous. This is absolutely wonderful. I really think that, that Whitney should. And uh, he said, if you'll trust me with it um, and not allow anybody else to record it, I'd be very grateful because I'll hold it for her next record. Well, he this conversation happened as she was on single number two or three. She was, doing, how will I know? And then I want to dance with somebody who loves me. And I don't know what followed. But that first album of hers not only spawned, I think, four singles, maybe four number one singles, but it was on the charts and on the uh, on the radio for a year and a half. I mean, it went on and on and on. And Clive, in his wisdom, was holding back, holding back. He was not letting her go into the studio. He was not going to commit her to the next sound of her act, of record until he had run the course with the first one. So he kept on calling to say, I'm still holding that song. I'm still holding on to it. Please bear with me. And we had requests in the meantime to record it. And we turned them down. And we put all of our chips on Whitney Houston. And to his credit, Clive Davis came through. Not only did she record it, but it he made it her second single after I'm Your Baby Tonight. And so that was a long journey. It was a very, very long journey from when we first recorded it with Linda Clifford to the the final ultimate enshrinement of it with Whitney Houston. Um, but it wasn't, it was Clive Davis in his wisdom and his tenacity that got that record finally up to the top of the charts. How does it feel to have had I mean, she was the she was the big star of the late '80s, early '90s. How does it feel to have had Whitney Houston sing one of your songs? It was it was you know having Whitney sing that song was was wonderful. Um, I will tell you an interesting story about that because all of that happened. I was not in the recording studios. They were done. Michael Nardawald and produced her in his studios in San Rafael, California, and so he was producing her and sending his mixes to Clive Davis, who was saying no, 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 and sending him back and making him re-record. And I don't know what was missing in those, but Clive was keeping me posted and Michael Gore posted about the, the journey that it was taking. And we were biting our nails because we didn't know whether they'd be able to thread the needle and get the absolute right recording. Uh, finally, Clive signed off on it. Finally, it went out there, became a huge hit. And then I don't remember what I went to the Golden Globes and, uh, you know, in the Golden Globes, everybody gathers in the lobby and they hobnob. But then slowly they filter into the dining room where they sit at tables and you eat dinner before the Golden Globe ceremony. And I got away from the crush and I went into the dining room and there were just a few people scattered at various tables. 
And there's Whitney Houston sitting with, I guess, an assistant. And I walked over, I was, my heart was pounding. I was pounding. And I walked over to her and I, I said, Miss Houston, and without looking up, she said, yes. And I said, Miss Houston, I wanted to thank you for recording one of my songs. Uh, I said, oh, oh, first of all, I said, my name is Dean Pitchford. And she said, I've heard of you. And I said, I wanted to thank you for recording one of my songs. And she said, which one was that? And I said, all the man that I need. And she leapt up from her chair and she went, she grabbed me and she said, thank you, thank you, thank you for that song. Do you know that I was having so much trouble getting into that song until I realized that I was singing about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I did not realize that she turned it into a spiritual. And that was her hook into the song. Nobody had told me about her process, but it was that encounter in the ballroom at the uh, at the Golden Globes where I suddenly got an insight into how Whitney had licked the the task. That is really cool. That's like Debbie Boone with "You Lie of My Life." That's what she did with her yeah. recording. Okay, okay, makes perfect sense. So. Give listeners a, an idea of what uh, your professional life was like, has been like, uh, these past five, ten years. Well, after uh, I began moving from, basically, from, as, as every business that I had gotten involved in, film and records and radio, every one of them was going through all kinds of spasms. There was all kinds of acquisitions. Small, independent labels were being eaten up by bigger conglomerates and there was a, a kind of consolidation that was taking a lot of the fun out of the process and and sort of sapping the energy out of the independent producers and independent thinking so small indie movies were not getting made big blockbuster uh you know part one part two part three part four were getting made and so I retreated to my work on Broadway. Um, I worked on a, a musical uh, based on Carrie, the music, uh, Carrie, the Stephen King, which was not successful the first time around in 1988. And then we revised it 20 some years later and became it's become nice, a very nice worldwide phenomenon ever since 2011 when we got another production in New York. Um, and then I adapted Footloose to the, the stage and that became a, a nice size hit on Broadway and then has gone on to worldwide success. Um, and then I began writing novels. I began writing middle grade novels and uh, I wrote three uh, novels that were published by Putnam until, again, in, in line with that kind of acquisition, Putnam merged with Random House, two of the biggest uh, publishing companies in the United States merged to become the largest publishing company. My editor was let go um, and I got lost in the shuffle. And I went, I've done this. I wrote three. I could put them on a the bookshelf back to back to back. And I felt very good about that. The first book I wrote was called The Big One-O. And it's the story of a nine-year-old boy turning 10 who is forced to throw his own birthday party, which ends up be, being a disaster and requires the Fresno Fire Department and Police Department and Emergency Medical Services all to descend on his birthday party. Um, about six or seven years ago, I was approached by a producer in New York who asked me whether I'd like to, could I please adapt it as a youth musical? And I, I said, that would be wonderful. And he suggested 
that he would write the libretto and he had somebody in mind for the music and somebody for the lyrics. And I raised my hand and I said, could I take a stab at the lyrics? He said, oh, would you do that? Would you do that? And I ended up bringing in my friend, Doug Besterman, who has won three Tony Awards for orchestrations on Broadway. And we, we've worked on a number of projects together. So Doug Besterman wrote music. I wrote the lyrics and Tim McDonald wrote the libretto for a musical based on the big one O. And we, uh, we got a premiere at the Atlantic Theater in New York, got wonderful reviews. Uh, we were supposed to record the cast recording in Nashville in February of 2020, but we know what happened. Right. Uh, eventually, we, over time, as the pandemic eased back, we finally accomplished the recording. We put all the voices on. We released the, uh, the music on Spotify earlier this year. The CD has now become available. And I look back on that as the happiest experience of my professional life. Every moment of it was a joy. My collaborators were fabulous to work with. All the workshops that we did of it and all the, the, the uh, mini productions we did in preparation for the Atlantic premiere were fabulous. And when that opened in September of 2019, I remember thinking, it doesn't get better than this. I, I'm not going to mess with this. I've had the happiest experience of my career. Why would I want to supplant it with like another anguish, hair pulling, nail biting, uh, stressful experience? And so I was able to close the close, turn the book, turn the page, move on to the next chapter, knowing that I had it is all culminated in the happiest experience of my career. And to be honest about Eight years ago, I I very this I just made the decision to tiptoe backwards quietly out of the room, and although I still have day to day duties with regard to my publishing and licensing, um, I don't work anymore. I don't take work anymore. Um, I have uh, I've have a, a very wonderful life taking care of my husband who's eighty two years old and has some health issues, and other than that, I am um, happily a spectator. Of all and all of those businesses that I used to be a part of. Well, I think one thing that's really great is you were able to pivot. You you knew one part of the the business wasn't um, for you at the moment, and you were able to to pivot to Broadway, and then Broadway was great, and then you were able to pivot to writing, and and um, I very few people are able to do that, and I think that's why they they get a little discouraged about the business sometimes. I've always said that I I. My my career is an evidence to my great curiosity and my very brief attention span. I, I I actually have been very fortunate to be able to go from performing to writing songs to writing films to directing films to writing books, and each time I've done that, it's been like I've had to go back to school. I don't assume that I know what I'm doing. I go back and I do a months of study. I go back to classes. I went to Juilliard in New York to study recording studio technique and harmonies. Uh, and so I, 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 I think of myself as a perpetual student. As a matter of fact, I am now in year number 18 of taking Spanish, uh, which I do every Tuesday night on Zoom with a class of six other people. And uh, I, I never want to stop learning. And so that's part of the, the journey that I've been on. And the nice thing is that along the way, every once in a while, what I've learned 
other people want to hear or read. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. So you've you've become the teacher for this podcast. I've learned a lot about songwriting. I've learned a lot about some of my favorite songs. And I I, I will be thanking you for the the till the end of time for your <laughs> your uh, your wisdom and insights and, and being a part of this show. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm very grateful to have been part of it. It's wonderful to revisit these places and, and these eras and for your questions to spark memories that are really warm and wonderful memories. What a strange year for movie songs. And as we'll see, original movie songs won't be as much in demand in the 1990s as movie studios turn to buying older songs for use in their movies. But the original songs that we do get could knock your socks off. I'm excited to share those songs with you in the upcoming 35 episodes remaining in the Best Song Podcast. And a big thanks to Marcelo Cabral and Carrie Moore for their support of the Best Song Podcast by sponsoring this episode. Thanks for singing along with me, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.